Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Kelly Mackin. She is the author of the upcoming book, Work Life Well Lived, and the co-founder of Motives Met, the work well-being platform empowering people to create their best work life and workplace. Today, we're going to talk about meditation, which I've read a lot about meditation. We've talked a lot about it. I learned a number of things I can't wait for you to hear about. We get into work, well-being, and psychological safety. And most importantly, we discover not only what our needs are, but how to get our needs met. Let's hop into the episode with Kelly Mackin. Uh, I'm excited to have you on, Kelly. You you have just completed a book. Last time we talked, you were like, I have to do a photo shoot for my book cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, thank goodness. I'm not going to be on the cover. Just the little one on the back. Just the little one oh, on the back. Oh, what's, what's going to be on the cover then? I don't know yet. It's exciting. We're uh, finally getting to this stage where I'm going to be getting cover options in the next few weeks. So we'll see. Time right. will tell. Yeah. I, I, so this book, Work Life Well Lived, I'm fascinated by. And part of it is, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I love how people, I love words and ideas. And at the end of your emails, your sign off are your five motives. Can you tell me about that? Because I was like, oh, that's pretty dope. It's like autonomy and uh, alimony. I don't know if that... I, I don't think it was alimony, but it was a knee in there. Yeah, no, you got it. Autonomy is one of them. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this one for for a while. We did, my team, we did research over, God, how many years? Years to really get to the bottom of what it means to have well-being at work. Because we were like, it's fantastic that we're actually using work and well-being in the same sentence. Like 10 years ago, that was not even really a thing yet. But we were like, why is it worse than ever? Why is ill being at an all-time high, even though we have, you know, better intentions on this? So there's more books and articles and, you know, wellness tech apps dedicated to it than ever before. So we figured out one of the big problems is we don't know what it is. <laughs> so we uncovered through our research 28 motives, which are psychological, emotional, and social needs that drive well-being at work. And these 28 needs fall into kind of 10 larger buckets or motive domains. So as you were mentioning, we have the autonomy motive with the free expression motive and flexibility motive. And those three motives are part of the freedom domain. In the meaning domain, we have the passion and purpose motives. But what you need to be most happy and healthy in your work life is going to be different than what I need to be happy and healthy at work. So that's why we built the assessment tool, because our research showed we all have a few of these needs that really rise to the top and drive our well-being today. But we have blind spots. We're not even aware half the time of what our needs are. And so the assessment kind of helps solve for that. Yeah, I, I did. I read this book called Strength Finders. And those type of assessments are so valuable. It's one of the reasons I'm with my girlfriend today, because in Strength Finders, it told me that I was a, I'm a visionary and I love input and 
I think it was like command or leadership or something like that, but that I needed someone. But what's beautiful about the book is it tells you who you need in your life to propel you forward or the, 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 the characteristics. And it said, I needed someone who was an executioner, which I've always known because I, I have a million ideas, right? I wake uh, up in the middle of the night and I'm like, I'm going to write 12 books. And I, and I really, in my brain, I think I can write 12 books in like a day or whatever. Um, and, but then I, you know, I end up scrolling on Instagram or what have you. And my girlfriend is that executioner. Like she is a get things done. Um, does your, does the assessment do the same thing where it's like, it helps identify your needs, but then helps you identify maybe the people you pair up with, uh, more effectively, or is it just like the workspace and the kind of work that, uh, would best suit you? Great question. It is very similar vibe to strength finders. And, you know, there's other kind of assessments out in the world as well that, you know, aim to do the same thing in terms of helping us to under, understand ourselves better and one another. So our assessment is mostly focused on work, but we've had multiple people say, oh, it's been really interesting when I found out my husband's motives versus mine. And we're talking about it and, oh, it makes so much sense why we butt heads sometimes like this or why we don't always understand each other or sometimes like why we have this in common. So it's really, it's interesting whether it's no matter what the relationship is, but especially if you're on a team or you're a leader, really understanding what drives other people you work with, what is most important to them. That is huge because half the time it's like, maybe when I do these workshops with people, it's really interesting how little, especially in today's remote world, they know about the people that they work with every day. You know, they'll maybe know what they did over the weekend. And that's like a maybe nowadays, but they don't know about what they actually care most about at work and how that might be really similar or different from them. So it really helps facilitate more of that genuine human to human connection of like, let's not just talk about surface level stuff. What really matters to you and why? And how does that manifest in your life? And how can we support one another? Even if we don't agree, we always, we kind of have this saying of, we all need to give a crap, but we don't need to love one another of like, you don't, we don't have to be best friends at work, but I can respect you deserve for your needs to be healthy just the way I deserve for my needs to be healthy. And if we can support each other like that, everybody wins. It's just going to be a better energy and a better workplace for everybody. I, I absolutely love that because I think what a lot of people don't realize is um, we value the same thing but we're approaching it differently. And sometimes when we're approaching things differently, it can look like they're attacking you. It can feel like they're attacking you versus we're actually on the same mission. I'm just, I think this path is, is the way to get there versus you think that path. Uh, a, a great example is, uh, uh, you know, quality time, you know, in a relationship where in my head, Quality time looks like um, me getting my work done during the day, early in the day, so we can spend time in the evening. But quality time for somebody else could be like, um, you know, the opposite where like your schedules are different, where like I have to go. I, that was a bad example, actually, now that I'm saying it. That, that was a horrible. I had it in my head because me and my girlfriend just had a conversation about how opposite we are, but it's the same 
um, with sound is like that. I there sounds that annoy me, and for her, it smells that annoy her. So once I understand <laughs> that her response to smells is the same as my response to sounds, then I go, oh, okay, I understand you now. Versus, why does that bother you so much? You know, it's like, oh, okay, that, we, we are annoyed, but it's the same. Yes. No, you're you're spot on. We say to, it's yeah. like self-awareness and then other awareness, right? Like other, you know, we, and, and it manifests a little bit differently by person. For example, fun is a human need at work. What you find fun at work might be really different than what I find fun. Or work-life harmony is emotive. I might be kind of a separator. Like I really need a start and stop time to thrive, to kind of know this is my work day and I'm done. But you might be an integrator. You might be like, hey, I'm on my email from six to 10 and then I go to the gym and then I take my dog on a walk and then I'm back working and then I take my kid to wherever and I'm back on emails at 10. And it's like, can be really simple things. But when you don't have these conversations, you're not going to know is but you know some people essentially get upset when they get emails at 10 p.m. and they're like oh god i have to answer and it's like if you just have the conversation that you just work differently and that's totally okay it it, it changes everything and it's it's these small things but these small things become big things when we don't tend to them right so yeah it could definitely lead into like resentment or feeling unheard or burnout uh and then you quit and it just feels so sudden it's like what i, I thought we were getting along i didn't realize it was that bad yeah. <laughs> have you yeah. have you always we're both from Chicago we bonded uh Kelly and I we met at Toastmasters and uh, we bonded over both being from Chicago and and as we were talking I could hear Kelly's accent come out while I was like oh, okay yeah yeah she got that Chicago in it um did, growing up was it easy for you to be aware of your needs and and ask to get your needs met or is that something that you've learned to do I absolutely had to learn to do it. And I still today have to relearn to do it. I think it's so ingrained in us and in our culture, and it is getting better today. But there's this idea that you have to earn well-being. That, you know, it's a privilege. And growing up, especially in the work context, I saw my mother go through a very you know, emotionally abusive, traumatic kind of work experience at her very toxic company. And that was so hard to watch, but I, I felt like that's just the way it is. And maybe with enough blood, sweat, and tears, you get to a place where your needs one day can matter and will be met, but you gotta, you gotta persevere and deal with it and buckle up. And that, you know, it wasn't, a right. It was a privilege. And that is absolutely not the way that it should be. And thankfully today, people really are demanding more from when it comes to their work needs. Talking about personal needs, you know, is, is a very different kind of a different area. But we have gotten to a place where people go, yeah, this isn't acceptable. Toxic workplaces, burnout, extreme stress, this stuff shouldn't be happening. And on top of it, there's all this amazing research and we have done so much of it ourselves that proves when people do have their needs met, met at work, everybody wins. Results are better. 
relationships are better. The output is better profit, um, less turnover. You know, I could go on and on and on. So it's a good thing for everyone. And people are starting to see that even CEOs of big companies are getting that now, which is amazing. Yeah, we used to have this winner takes all or, you know, winners versus losers or, you know, this idea of like dominating and being on top and number one. And, you know, it's, it's what my couples therapist says that if one of you wins the argument, then you've lost the relationship. Mm. And and I think we see that in a workplace where, you know, if the if the boss gets his way completely, then the employees start to leave or the customers stop coming in, but, but there's someone loses or walks away or defects um, or just, you know, was it slow quitting that they're talking about uh, today? The, you know, when you talk about getting your needs met, you, you talked about your mom. Was that someone who you felt like was able to identify your needs as a kid growing up? And how did you communicate that with your mom? And, um, and what were your needs as a, as a kid? Was it more time with mom? Was it less time? Was it? It was more time with mom. Totally. If, if I had, I used to stay, she laughs about this now, but I used to stay up late in her office and work with her because she was so busy during the day that I didn't get to see her. So I set up a desk in her office so I could work while she worked. I told her maybe one day I'm going to write a book, mom. She's like, wow, that's finally happening. But it was like my quality time with her. And I just thought she was the most amazing person on the planet. And, and she is. She was so creative and dedicated to her work. She was uh, SVP of research at a, at a top global company. So, you know, it was so fun. She would get ideas for her research from me. You know, she'd go, what, what makes Gap cool? You know, what do you, why, why do you think it's cool? Why, why do you like American Girl or Disney or this or that? And so I kind of from a young age got brought into this world of research through my mom. But unfortunately, my mom had to focus so much on work that she didn't get to help me focus as much on my personal needs. And she didn't quite honestly get to focus on her personal needs either. And, you know, that obviously is a problem. It's a problem that a lot of parents really struggle with today, for sure. When you say she couldn't focus on her personal needs, what did that look like? Or how did that manifest itself? It was wild. There's one day in particular that jumps out at me that I was like, man, I ever, ever since that day, I felt like things really started to change. I came downstairs. I was like 10 years old and my mom was making pancakes and I was shocked. Like I had never, my mom did not have the time to be a pancake flipper. Like she is an important person. She is usually off to work or frantically getting ready for work. This was like not a thing. And she just thought it was hilarious that I was like, what are you doing making pancakes on a weekday before? And she was like, well, I've been up all night working and felt like I deserved a break to make you pancakes. And it's like, man, from that moment on, I just remember all nighters were, were a regular thing. Weekend after weekend spent chained to her computer all the time. And then not only did it become kind of those long work hours for her, when her company was bought out, she had a new boss come in. Things really turned a corner to where the boss was extremely passive aggressive. 
she was no longer getting to work with these amazing people she loved. They were either being fired or they were walking out on their own. She wasn't able to create and innovate anymore. She just kept having work piled on her. And it was to the point where I would hear my mom get physically sick in the morning before work. And I would go, what is going on? And it, and it was so sad because my mom loved her work so much and gave so much to this company for 25 plus years that it was like, how is this happening? Because that's the thing, work can be this amazing part of our lives, or at the very least, it can help us live the life we want to live outside of our job. And so to see someone who had such confidence and joy and purpose from her work go to the opposite side where her work was destroying her, it was so, it's so hard to watch when someone goes through that. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, I'm feeling it behind my eyes a little bit right now, just hearing you talk about it. To what um, you said, chained to her computer. Um, it was almost like you felt like you lost that access that you had to your mom, you know, to yeah. be able to pull up the laptop and be able to sit next to her. Where it, it sounded like early on it was collaborative, you felt included. And now, you know, you're going to bed, but she's still there. Yeah. And when you're so inundated by work like that, you can't think clearly, you can't see clearly, you don't have time to tend to the things that are important to you, let alone, you know, all the other people in your life. And it's hard because those beliefs, though, that we had talked about previously of feeling like you need to earn this right for well-being can be so ingrained in us that even though I had seen all of that, I ended up following right in my mother's footsteps. And I went into crazy agency worlds where it was like Mad Men, but for modern times. And I was, it was to the point where I was physically, emotionally, mentally unwell from work. It was, I look back on it now and I'm like, that's insane. How did I do that? How did I think it was okay? But when you're in it, and it's normalized in your culture, and it's normalized by leaders in the company, it's much more difficult. But it took hitting a real low to finally wake up and go, this is not okay. And it really was my big wake-up call in life that in general, whether it was in or outside of work, well-being needed to be the way. That, that I did deserve that, that everybody deserved that. And, and that's when I really made it my career to go, I want to help people figure out how to have well-being in their lives because it is something everybody deserves. When I gave my speech at Toastmasters on the, you know having this podcast and suicide, afterwards you came up to me and shared that you could relate was was this that moment for you when you said it was a, a low point? Uh, take us through that. Yeah, uh, this was definitely one of the, you know, I think for me, there's a few moments in my life that jump out as kind of saying that was one of the dark, the dark times. And this was definitely one of them. I had put my whole life and my whole value as a person, my worth into my job. Because I believed that's where it came from, that me being successful 
in a job and becoming VP one day in a corporate company that that was what I was destined to do. And I wasn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I felt like I didn't have a sense of identity. And I had from this really difficult work experience, along with stress and depression, I was experiencing just in life in general, had gotten to a place where I had sleep disorder, my hands would shake. I was on a combination of Ambien and Xanax. And it was a, a time that just, I wasn't myself. And I felt like I didn't know what to do. So feeling lost, feeling stuck, feeling defeated on top of sitting underneath a blanket of anxiety that would be so crippling some days that I just couldn't even get out of bed was so difficult. And I felt so alone in it at that time. And I know that's that's something I hear from, from clients I've worked with too, is this feeling of, of feeling isolated and alone when you're, when you're in that place. How did you start to get out of bed, take a shower, brush your teeth? Um, you know, how did you start the baby steps out of that place? I mean, you're, you're on Xanax, you're on, was it Ambien or yeah. sleeping pills? Yeah. A lot of ambient. Um, I don't, I think I didn't have any significant baby steps for a while. It was band-aid steps. It was sure. Okay. I'll lay in bed all day. Tomorrow I will force myself to go, you know, get out of bed and go do this. But I said, I wasn't treating for the root problem. So I could have a good week. I could have an okay two weeks. I could kind of pretend this wasn't happening to some degree. But it came to a place where I was like, no, I need to change my life. I need to change how I how I deal with everything. Because two at the time, self-medicating, I'll drink, I'm going to go out or I'll sleep all day, right? Dealing with it in these ways that aren't healthy and that they're not sustainable. And even the Ambien and Xanax, and I very much believe that medication has a time and place. But for me, those things were, were band-aids. The anxiety underneath was why I couldn't sleep. And being on that much Ambien every day for the rest of your life, I was on like 10 milligrams, which is a lot. And I still wouldn't be sleeping at four in the morning. It's like, that's not, that's not sustainable for the rest of my life. Um, so Luckily, after trying many therapists, and this was the hard part too, I tried multiple therapists who did not really help me. And one that just kind of misdiagnosed me and again, just very much wanted to throw prescription medication at me. I eventually came across a mindfulness-based therapist. And I had been told before to try meditation and I like laughed <laughs> because I was like, do you know me? I am Chicago. I am high stress. I am not patient. I, this is, what are you talking about that you think this is going to help me? I literally thought it was like a joke and I, I kind of like barely tried twice. And I was like, yeah, okay. This is not going to solve all my problems. This mindfulness based therapist, which thank God I didn't know she was one. 
Her name just got referred to me. If I had known and looked her up and saw she was into meditation, I probably wouldn't have gone. So this was the powers that be in the universe who were dealing me a good card. But she introduced me to Buddhism and mindfulness principles and meditation. And to say it changed my life would be an actual understatement. And it is not meditation in itself, as in if I just go meditate on this app, it's going to you know change my life. It changed my belief system. It changed, you know, I always say my um, meditation is how you train your brain to be mindful, essentially. So it's a form of training. It's not that meditation in itself is going to like fix everything. Because when I have clients come to me and talk to me about that, like, yeah, no, it's not like some, you know, some thing you do and it's just all of a sudden your problems go away, but it changes you and shifts your mindset at a much deeper level. And that is what makes a huge impact. So that was kind of my first step. But then once I got into it and started to understand it, then I was like on a roll. I like read a million Buddhism books. I became a cognitive behavioral therapy practitioner because I really started to understand and study how our brain works. Because when you understand what your human brain is doing, you're so much more empowered and it makes so much more sense. Because there's so many things we're taught when we're young that aren't really true about like how our brain actually works. Like, were you ever taught as a kid, like, hey, I just want you to be happy? You know, did you ever have parents or people who say that to you? Like, you should just be, I just want you to be happy. And it sounds so innocent, right? That sounds so nice. But it really roots us, us in this idea that if we're not happy, something is wrong when actually our brain is built for survival. We are still living with the same brains that our ancient ancestors had when they were running away from like saber-toothed tigers. So our brain isn't built to just be happy all the time. We are humans meant to experience, yes, happiness, but you know, grief and despair along with joy and excitement and peace. We're built for all of the things. And you don't have to love it. I I tell people that you don't have to sit there and pretend that that's just a blessing that you get to experience all the things, but you do have to accept it because there is so much relief that comes in that acceptance of what we are actually put on this earth to do and experience. And there's such freedom in it that can just change how you relate to the circumstances in your life. I never thought about meditation as training for my brain. Oh, that gets me excited. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm about to go train my brain right now. Uh, versus because med- the word meditation is such a triggering word, actually. It feels so heavy. Like I have to do something so right and so perfect. But when you're like, oh, I'm just going to go train my brain on how to you know, do nothing which sounds simple until you try to do nothing. And then you're like, oh, this is, this is a lot more difficult than I thought it was just sitting with yourself. Um, When you look back on the process of sitting with yourself, of meditation or training your brain, what is the typical cycle? And here's what I mean. I think a lot of people don't, 
or stop meditation or don't even try meditation, but especially the ones who've started and stopped, is because meditation itself is kind of sold as this panacea for peace. It's like, oh, oh, if you want to feel peace and 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 serenity, just go and meditate. But they don't really explain to you that you might have to sit with yourself for a while before you get there. Because in the beginning, it's anything but peace and tranquility. If you were to describe the phases of meditation or the experience of it, how would you do that? I love that you said that because <laughs> that is that is something that I think can veer people in the wrong direction because meditation is about learning to sit with what is, whatever that may be. It's actually not about having expectations. And when you learn to sit there with yourself, no matter what's going on in your brain, it really allows you to center yourself outside of your meditation in a way you never could before. And that's the whole point of meditation. It's not to get good at meditation. Who cares? No, it's about getting good at life outside of the meditation. So every time I bring my brain back to whatever I'm focusing on in my meditation, I am doing a bicep curl for my brain. That's how we call it. Because a lot of people now can kind of understand this idea, right? Of like going to the gym, right? And how it's good for you. Meditation is just going to the gym for your mind. You choose something to focus on, whether that's your breath, whether it's a mantra, whether it's a shape or a smell, it can be anything. And you're going to focus on it and then you let your focus go. And that's either going to happen intentionally or unintentionally, right? Because our brain is going to wander. We have over 60,000 thoughts a day. Our brain is supposed to wander. And then you are going to fall into what we call the gap in meditation. It's the space of nothingness between your thoughts. And it can last for like a millisecond or it can last for minutes. And then when you notice that your brain has wandered, all you do is gently bring it back to whatever that focal point was, your breath, a mantra. So every time you do the, my brain takes me away and I bring it back, that is a bicep curl. And that is what you're supposed to do in your workout. You're supposed to go do bicep curls. You are not supposed to sit there with nothing in your head and feel peace. That wouldn't even be what meditation is. And so I think too, it's tough because on some of these guided meditation apps, and, and I love these apps and I'm on some of them, but a lot of the meditations, they don't give you a focal point and you're not actually really meditating. And they can give you a great lesson and they can make you reflect and think, and it can still be a great like use of your time, but it's not technically meditation. So it's really helpful for people to understand there's like five simple steps and I just walked through them and that's it. And when you really get that, you can just tune into that any place, anywhere. When I am really stressed, I love the visualization of breathing in the shape of an infinity sign. And when I'm at the airport and I'm getting stressed out and my flight's delayed and whatever, I lean into that. I can close my eyes and do that for two minutes and it changes everything. So it's like a tool I can constantly go back to and that my body remembers, but I don't have to sit there and meditate an hour every day to get the benefits from meditation. But I will say it's important when you're starting out to really train yourself and learn it because then you have that to carry with you. 
I really got some street vibes off of you describing meditation. Like, I, I felt like you was about to do it like a rap battle, the way <laughs> it, it, the physicality and the passion. I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm charged. I'm geek to go do a meditation. You talked about, like, uh, as a way of dealing with stress. And, you know, I, I keep going back to Toastmasters talking about focal points. And that the speech that you gave w- was identifying the difference between stress versus stressors. Can you, can you walk us through that, that speech and, and, the, and the topic? Because I thought it was really powerful. I took notes, which I rarely do when people are giving speeches. Yeah. So my meditation teacher, his name is David G. He is amazing. He wrote the book, De-Stressifying. And he takes such a modern approach to meditation, which I love because I think that's one of the things that helps people to kind of be able to relate to it, especially in the beginning is it it is this kind of modern tool for stress when you go about it the right way. But he has an amazing definition of stress, which is that stress is how we respond when our needs are not met. Every day we are expected to have unmet needs, right? Like life, that's the thing. We have to embrace this idea of stress. It's never going away. So, you know, there's all those marketing messages out there that are like, stop your stress, eliminate your stress. It's like, no, 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 that's never going to be the case, but we can learn to manage it. So when you think about stress as unmet needs, why that becomes so powerful is because you are starting to get to the root cause of your stress and not just putting Band-Aids on it. Because there are a lot of stress management techniques out there and they, they can be nice, they can be helpful, but they're treating for the surface level symptoms, not treating for the root cause. So it's all this stuff that's like, Hey, do self-care, you know, take a bath, make sure you go on long walks. It's like, if you're dealing with significant unmet needs that are continuing to cause anxiety in your life, no amount of that self-care or yoga class or green juice or long walk with your dog is going to help you really deal with that. So when you're feeling stressed, if it's something that you continuously find stress about, right? Like you could be stressed and annoyed because your flight is missed. Okay. That, that doesn't, you know, you don't need to dig deep into why that is. This isn't a continuous thing, (laughs) but when you're consistently feeling stressed about a relationship, right? Your job, your finances, something that's going on. You have to ask yourself, what is the unmet need that is causing the stress? Because then you get to the real root cause. And it kind of forces yourself to, because whether we like it or not, subconsciously, we can kind of want to bury it. I don't want to deal with it. I maybe don't quite know how to quote unquote fix what's going on. So I'm just going to say, it's been a rough week. I'm going to go have a few drinks after work to de-stress. Or yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to relax tonight and, and, and take a bath after work and hope that helps. And we kind of just want to hide from it. But this really forces you to have this carefrontation with yourself, as I like to call it, where you go, okay, this is this is not going away here. What are we going to do about it? And something else that's really important is when you do that, then you're able to ask the second question that's really important. So the first question is, what is the need that is not being met that's causing the stress? 
The second question is, how does it feel when that need is not met? Because stress is what I call a blanket emotion. We want to hide beneath its covers because it's become really socially acceptable and common today to say we're stressed. That wasn't true even about 15 or so years ago, but stress is like in its heyday, it's everywhere. So it's a lot easier to say to yourself and to other people, I'm stressed than to say, I am terrified. I'm afraid. I'm angry. I'm irate. I am annoyed. I'm bored. Those things, admitting to yourself or other people that that's what's going on is tougher, but it it puts you in a much more empowered position when you really step into that emotional awareness of what's going on. And it helps other people understand when you're able to accurately do that as well. Yeah, it goes back to this idea of trying to get to happy. And so we're ignoring anything else that's not happy. And if we're not happy, it makes everything else feel like it's at a 10 or 12 or 20 or whatever. Um, and and plus, like, I, I think it's hard for people to identify because nobody's growing up with that emotional vocabulary. You know, your mom is either pissed or cool, you know, uh, upset or frustrated, but no one, you know, your parents aren't even using the, the more nuanced emotional vocabulary words of sad or hurt or deflated or, or powerless. Like who's saying I feel powerless, even though it's clear, it's so clear that that's what's going on for you. But to admit such a thing is, um, and can be embarrassing or shameful, right? Like maybe I'm going to lose the trust of the people around me. I'm not going to admit that. Um, going back to the unmet needs, I was reading this book about, uh, suicidal, the suicidal mind. And it had this form, I think it's called the Murray form form. And it had a list of needs. And one of the needs, and I did an episode on this, was for submissiveness, which I was shocked by. But look, you know, this need to feel dominated, which, you know, when I think about how big the, the S&M community is, um, it, it shouldn't shock me. But when I, I think traditionally when I thought of needs, I thought of love, care, support, like these positive light words. But I, I think that some of us are walking around with, needs that we might be embarrassed by or think that there's something wrong with having this need mm. and so thereby i mean who's going to admit that i have a need for submissiveness right um unless like you're in a very very safe space and also you you're aware that you have that you may not even be aware that you have a need for for domination in some ways um do you when you look at the list of needs, is there a need that surprises you that's on the list of needs? Which list are we talking about? Uh, you were talking about your 28. Oh, my 28. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You're going back. Yes. I should have been specific. You're 28, you know, because, you know, it's research-based. You've done your homework. It's to get it down to 28. Did you go, ah, I never thought about this being a need. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's such an important part of the framework we've built and the work we're doing is this idea that we need to embrace motive diversity, as we call it. Because 
some of these 28 needs at work can be put on a pedestal. There'll be a buzzword of, of the moment. They're kind of, you know, like the common one or, or very acceptable, like you're saying, you know, innovation. Who, who can like disagree that that's like has any sort of negative connotation, right? Or like, you know, but what's interesting is one need can be kind of like a hot topic, really acceptable in one culture and one team into one person, but very much be the opposite to someone else. So purpose is kind of like a hot button word right now in the work world. But then there are some people, I have a story of someone who recently took our assessment and she was sharing kind of what we call your motive story, kind of the story behind the needs. And she was sharing that she has the purpose motive as a top motive, but it's tough because she grew up as a first generation immigrant family and was told like, you can't be a dreamer. What do you mean work that has meaning that that's what you want to focus on? No, you need to go do something practical. You need to focus on success and achievement, which are also motives. So, you know, to somebody, it's like they grew up with their being told, oh my God, you got to find your purpose. What do you want to do in life? And kind of this pressure of feeling like I need to have that or someone else can be told, hey, that need is not something that you should care about. So just the way there are certain needs that kind of are popular or buzzwords, there are certain needs that we can overlook, we judge, we dismiss. Fun can be thought of as frivolous at work or appreciation unnecessary, right? So it can be more difficult if you have a need that maybe you're worried your boss isn't super cool with, or maybe your boss is is different. You might be going, hey, I have the need for clear expectations here. And my boss is like real autonomy, go do whatever. And is this is like, I need, I need some direction. I need some goals. And we're just really different. And so it's kind of scary for me because I go, how am I going to talk to him about this? And that's kind of one of the benefits of the assessment is it helps to open the door to that stuff. And we want to make it okay for everybody to have these needs saying, it doesn't matter. You might think if you're a leader or a manager, for example, you might think growth is of top importance, right? Because there's an article out there that'll say the number, you know, the number one reason people leave their companies is because of lack of growth. But guess what? If Leo doesn't need growth, he needs fun. He needs belonging. He needs peer connection. He needs fairness and security at work. It doesn't matter if I give Leo all the growth in the world. If his needs aren't met, he's not going to be happy here. He's probably going to leave. So we need to embrace motive diversity and respect that someone else might not care about what I care about. So we cannot anticipate, we cannot expect that everybody is going to be the same. And we also have to even be open to this ourselves. Because when I first took my own assessment, I had helped build the algorithm. Security was in my top five motives. And I was like blindsided. I was like, what? That feels so off. I guessed two of my five, which were autonomy and flexibility, because those are very much tied to my values and and kind of what I believe. So I, I had a good guess I would get those. But security seemed a bit like a slap in the face because I'm this entrepreneurial risk taker kind of person. I haven't really lived by security at all. But that was kind of the point is here I am leaving the security of my 
old career behind to go be an entrepreneur with a new business, joining the work well-being movement. And it was so scary, terrifying. But I didn't, I didn't want to admit that. I didn't want to sit with it. I didn't want to need it. But I did. And so my own tool really forced me to do that. And then I went, okay, how am I going to work through this? Because my other two motives were future success and achievement. So I don't want to be too comfy. If I'm really comfy, then I'm probably not stretching myself to go do all the things I got to do to make motives met successful and push myself as a person to achieve all my goals. But if I don't work through this, then this fear is going to hold me back because I could see it. I could see where I'd have one foot in and one foot out, or I'd be a little bit yes and a little bit no. So this idea of embracing need diversity, whether it's at work, whether it's in our personal lives, is so important. Wow. I love that idea of motive diversity and need diversity. Um, and, and this idea of if we don't get our needs met, then there's going to be some collateral damage from that, uh, personally and for the people around us, you know, earlier you shared that, you know, when you had hit your low point, struggling the Xanax, the Ambien, hard to get out of bed. Uh, meditation was a, a step forward for you. Mindfulness meditation. It, you also talked about cognitive behavioral therapy. What is it about cognitive behavioral therapy that also helped to get you out of there? To, I mean, to the point where you became a practitioner. It was kind of a combination of multiple aspects of psychology and meditation and then CBT that led me to actually develop what I call mind management, which one day I hope becomes a thing that like kids are taught in schools. But the way I like to think of mind management is that it helps you play both defense and offense with your brain because life is a game we have to play in our imperfect brains. So the way we get good at that game is by having both strong defense and offensive strategies. So a lot of mindfulness and meditation really helps with defense, as I like to think of it. So we have all of these thoughts coming at us all the time, right? 60,000 thoughts a day. So we can't give our attention to all of those thoughts. We have to learn how to step outside of ourselves and become what we like to call in meditation, the compassionate observer. Just kind of letting those thoughts be and not fueling them. Because if we don't fuel those thoughts, if we don't feed them, then they don't have any real threat over us. And when you really start to understand again, how your brain works, you can see how much we do feel those thoughts and we judge ourselves for them instead of going, oh, I have one of 60, that's one of 60,000 thoughts today. My brain, my brain throws out all sorts of crazy stuff. It doesn't mean anything, right? Nothing means anything until your mind makes it mean something. So the meditation piece really helps with that. But then CBT really starts to focus more on offensive strategies. 
And essentially where that stems from is what I like to call kind of the mind model. So we have our circumstances in life and we have thoughts about our circumstances. And those thoughts about our circumstances make us feel something. And from those emotions, we do things. That leads to our actions, right? The things we do, the things we don't do. And then that ultimately is going to create our results. And the way so many of us are brought up is to think that life is happening to us, right? There are these circumstances, something bad happens and it creates my reality. It creates my results. But through this model, you start to see that it's really not the circumstance. It's your thoughts about the circumstance. Because you can take any circumstance and everybody is going to have different thoughts about it. And it's going to lead to different feelings and different actions and different results. So when you start to step into that, it's so much more powerful because you get out of that victim place and you go, hey, I have control over what I'm going to think, feel, and do about this circumstance. Now, it might you might not love the circumstances, and that that can be true as well. You know, I won't go too... I think that's also part of what I love about CBT is for me, a lot of the mind, like the mindset work, I steered clear of it for so long, sadly, because it was so toxic positivity to me. Like, oh, just think happy thoughts, you'll be happy. You just, you can choose happiness. Like it was just that easy. And to me, that felt really untrue and disingenuous. And so I like anything that had to do with the word mindset. I was like, that's not real. And what this does is it say, it can be very real, but but the choice, you have choice. You have big choice here to go. What are you going to make that circumstance mean for yourself? You can literally ask yourself, how do you want to feel? And then you can look at your thoughts and go, how are you going to make your thoughts improve so that you can feel how you want to feel? And that's what really becoming the CEO of your mind is about. Is it saying this stuff is still going to be there? Like if you think about being in a boardroom, right? You're going to have all sorts of people there and stuff going on. It doesn't go away, but you get to call the shots. And that's what you start doing with your mind. You create better, believable thoughts. And believable, again, is a key word here. Because it's not saying, oh, you you hate your body. Just go to, I love my body. doesn't work that way. Because guess what? Your brain goes, no, I don't. And then it makes you feel worse. And it's actually proven it'll make you feel worse and do worse. But you can maybe go from, I hate my body to neutral. I have a body. And you can work your way up a staircase of thoughts to get to where you want to go but you make it baby believable steps. You can even say, I'm working on believing I'm going to find love again. You know, I'm, I'm working on believing that 10 years from now, my life will be very different than it is today. That thought alone can create such a better emotional experience. So when you learn all these techniques in CBT, you start to really become aware of what your brain's doing, and then ask yourself the right questions to start changing your emotional experience and your actions and your outcomes. And it's such such a different way of living. 
than that victim mindset. Yeah, yeah, what really stood out to me from what you shared is going from I hate my body to I have a body. Going from the the charged emotions of it to the the neutral space in it. Um, it speaking of body, I, I know that you climbed, uh, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro, and you made it to Everest Bank uh, Base Camp. Was that part of you? working through your body and working your way out of the the pain that space that you were in it was i was i was when i before i climbed kilimanjaro which was my first big hike i had probably been about I want to say five months into really waking, I call it kind of like my wake up moment in life. Like I woke up, I I so desperately needed to wake up and I woke up and I'm so grateful for it. But then I got hit with another whammy where my fiance broke up with me six weeks before my wedding. Best thing that happened, but obviously really tough, especially because I had clawed my way to kind of start to get to a better place in my life. And it kind of felt like finally this one normal good thing was happening. And, and then this happened, but I didn't, I didn't want to deal with it in a way that was going to harm me. I wanted to deal with it in a way that was going to make my life bigger and better. And if I had not found all this, this training and these tools, I never would have done it. And it's still to this day, top moment of my entire life. And I hope one day I beat that moment, but I wouldn't take that moment of standing on top of Mount Kilimanjaro on New Year's Day, seeing the sunrise. I would not take that back for the world. But the training I was in is what allowed me to pull the trigger to do it because I'd always wanted to do a big epic hike. Why? I don't know. I'm from Chicago. I, it was pavement land. I used to wear heels every day. I didn't hike. I didn't do anything. And so here I am like, yeah, I live in San Francisco now and I dabbled a little bit, but it's like, everyone was like, wait, you're going to go climb Kilimanjaro. Shouldn't you be on a beach, like drowning your sorrows, drinking a margarita or something, or 10 of them? Like you're going to go in three months, you're going to get off Ambien and Xanax in three months and climb 19,000 feet. Like, are you crazy? But I decided like, no, I could do this. And I literally, this one quote inspired me so much by Napoleon Hill. It's the only limitations are the ones we create in our minds. And I literally wrote it down on a piece of paper and I had it in my pack with me because I got really terrible altitude sickness, not the the night before summit, but the, the second night before. And I, I'm telling you, I wouldn't wish that on my own worst enemy in life. I, I could not move. I, I thought life was over. They were going to have to bring me down, but I was determined. I was like, if I have to crawl to the next camp, I'm going to get there. So it took a long time. Like vision was blurry. Couldn't keep food down. Multiple guides had to stand next to me. So I didn't fall off this vertical wall. We were climbing that day. It was not a great day to, to not to be unwell. But I kept leaning into that quote to say, like, this is a mental game. Getting to the top of this mountain, more so than physical, it is mental that you believe in yourself that you can do it. And without it, I never would have even booked the ticket to go. And I never would have 
eventually made it to the summit that day. What do you do? This is such a strange question, but what did you do right after? And, and I'm asking, when I think about Olympic athletes, they train for months, years. I mean, months, years. Then they get to the Olympics. Maybe they medal. And then there's this huge drop off of emotion of, you know, this because there's a big buildup of excitement and adrenaline. And then the, the fans go home, you're back on the plane, back home. It, it's almost it, reality moments after that can just kind of feel uh, tasteless or, you know, so was that an experience that you also had after climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or was there a, a, a smooth transition? That I, that can definitely happen. I've definitely had moments in my life where I felt that happen. Uh, for that specific instance, I didn't find that to be true because I kind of had my next goal lined up. And I, I think that's kind of what I do now in life. I, I accomplish one thing I want to accomplish and I already kind of know where I'm going afterwards. So even if there's a little bit of a like, hey, let's enjoy this for a second or let's sit in this come down of this adrenaline, it's kind of I know where I'm going. But because of that, I also think what's cool is it's really made me understand that as cheesy as the saying is, it is like about the journey because you're going to reach one goal and then guess what? you you have the next one and you're not going to be happy, right? Quote unquote, until you reach that. And then there'll be another one and another one. So it's more of like falling in love with just consistently growing and pushing and seeing what's, what's going to happen and experiencing it instead of like, yes, you want to reach certain goals for sure. And that's, there's something beautiful in that too. But it changes, I think, kind of the emotional experience you have with goals in a way that I I think is more productive for me personally in life. Uh, I love that. Um, last three questions I have for you. I know that you're a big fan of Gilmore Girls and Friday Night Lights. And I was sure like, I what is it about those shows? I know that Gilmore Girls is, you know, a mother-daughter relationship and Friday Night Lights is, you know, about a team and, and a city that all rallies around football. Um, when you think about it after our after the conversation we've just had, uh, is there a through line you've discovered for both of those that connect with you or resonate with you? Do, do those shows fulfill a need for you or... You know, it's interesting because you're right. I think my mom and I have a close relationship. I mean, she's co-founded this company with me. And, you know, as you heard from the stories growing up, we've we've always kind of had this close-knit relationship. So I think, I think probably Gilmore Girls, there is this mother-daughter relationship that that continues on that's special. And I think that probably feels good for me, comforting, something I can relate to. And I think with Friday Night Lights, it has to be just even with our conversation right now, kind of like goal-related ambition because there's so much of it in that show. At the end of the day, it's like everyone's trying to get out of that town 
grow their life. You know, it's kind of, and you're just really rooting for everybody. You know, you get emotionally attached. You're like, yes, you can do it. So I think that's probably why those two kind of feel like this safe, happy, comforting place. Um, so I like to watch them before bed because then it chills me out. So <laughs> I love that. And then my penultimate question, I learned that word from Emmy, Emmy Neatville Bell. Um, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Kelly? I would say, ask yourself these two questions. First question is, what if? And second question is, who could I help today? First question, what if, is one that I have leaned leaned on when I have been in that exact dark moment. Because I believe that we all, even if it's just 1%, have a little bit of curiosity in us of what if things could be different? What if I haven't met someone I'm supposed to meet in this life yet? What if this won't matter in a year? What if my life's different in five years? What if I really mean something to someone and and I'm not even aware of it? What if I could do some things that I didn't think I could do? So it's leaning into that. What are you curious about? Even if it's just something small. And it actually reminds me of a conversation you and I did have after Toastmasters where you were talking about people's bios. And you were like, I don't want to read bios until the bios like finished because I'll read someone's bio. And then it changes like five years from now. Oh, they're not married to that person. They're actually a lesbian. They don't do this anymore. They're that their bio completely changed. And that's the whole point is that sometimes we can get in this place where we we feel so stuck and we feel like things aren't going to change or they're not going to get better. But it's like your bio is not done yet. It's never done. And so leaning into just that curiosity of what could change in it. Aren't you just a little bit curious? For me that that's super powerful. And the second piece is so many people need love, need connection, need help, whether it's big help, small help. So that's another thing that's been really valuable for me is just thinking about who's one person I could help tomorrow. And how many people might I be able to help in this lifetime? Who could use my advice? Who could literally use a helping hand? And hey, if I stuck around, wouldn't it be worth it if I could just help one person? in this really, what can be tough life sometimes, if I could do that for somebody, then you know what? You're going to see me tomorrow. Powerful. Last question. What are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? Ooh, 24 hours. Well, tonight I'm going to be playing some beach volleyball and watching a sunset. And it's uh, my favorite day of the week. So it's going to be a good one. Good way to end the day. Is it because of Taco Tuesdays? Why is Tuesday? Is it because of volleyball or is there another reason why Tuesday is your favorite day of the week? It's just no Tuesday volleyball. Tuesday, but it's just a nice, nice way to, to end the day. So I love it. Yeah. You know, you're on the beach with friends. You have a sunset. 
playing volleyball, which I'm obsessed with. So it's just a good night, you know? I love that. Where can people uh, reach out to you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kelly Mackin. That's where I'm most active in terms of social media. Uh, the website for my company, Motives Met, is motivesmet.com. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the 800 numbers listed in all of the show notes. No matter where you are in the world, you could be in uh, Nepal or where is Mount, where is uh, Kilimanjaro or Africa? Where, where, what country? Tanzania. Tanzania. You could be in Tanzania. We have 800 numbers for you wherever you are in the world. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Kelly.